0: Welcome to the Grief James Podcast. My name is Sean
1: Ram alongside Dr. Joshua Black. Dr. Black, how are you today? I'm doing good, Sean. It's uh, another wonderful day here in Ontario, Canada, but we're still locked up. Yeah, yeah, we are. We're still
0: going through the pandemic, and I'm sure uh, many of you as well are uh, in quarantine or or uh, just, you know, isolating from other people. And, and uh, yeah, I know it's tough, but uh, hey, that's something... We all got to do and get used to for the time being, and I hope you're, uh, you get a chance to enjoy the podcast and listen to the episodes, and I hope that's given you some sort of enjoyment at home. Here's another guest that we have on today, and really happy to uh, talk to this individual, and her name is Lisa Kefauver, and she spent the last two decades as a clinical social worker and narrative therapist. She witnessed firsthand the unnecessary suffering of so many individuals because of their families, communities, and culture weren't supporting them in their grief. And then, it happened, and then it happened to her too. At 40, Lisa became a widow. In 2011, her husband Eric died in her arms, leaving her a single mother to their seven-year-old daughter. Just a few years later, she was by the bedside of a close friend when he succumbed to the ravages of muscular dystrophy. Lisa is the founder and CEO of Reimagining Grief and host of the podcast, Grief is a Sneaky Lisa, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you so much, you guys, for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here today.
1: Yeah, it's so amazing to be able to talk to you. It's, It's always strange how we meet people in this world. And I met you because you hashtagged grief dreams on your Instagram account because you did a post on that and I follow that hashtag. And I, we got to meet, and I realized you had a podcast too, and you're doing your thing within the grief world, and I love that. And I'm so excited to be we able to talk to you and talk a little bit more about those dreams you're having.
2: That's awesome. I know. Isn't it funny how we, there, there's two things that you brought up that's interesting. One is just how we meet people now from around the globe so easily because of technology and because, and we can find things that we have common interests about. You know, because this invention called a hashtag that didn't exist, you know, very long ago. And the other thing is just the way in which grief, um, I often talk about grief actually severs a lot of relationships in our lives. Of course, not just the person that we lost, but sometimes people can't handle our grief and they don't know how to show up, so they disappear. Mm -hmm. So, in some ways, grief has relationships ending, but I've also found I've developed a lot of new relationships because of grief you know, because of the shared interest. So it's just interesting how you, how we connect with people over things. And, and this is one of those topics.
1: I think that goes to that quote, like when one door closes another opens kind of thing. And that yeah. can be with relationships too, but they're sometimes all the doors are closed and that's sort of that yeah. loneliness feeling until you can meet sort of this new tribe, these new people that gravitate towards who you are now.
2: Yeah. And who can get you and be comfortable and not tense or, you know, that kind of added you know, energy that sometimes people have when they haven't become comfortable with grief in their own lives. And then they just don't know how to show up for other people. Yeah.
1: And so you haven't, have you always been involved in grief in some way or was that only recently?
2: You know, that was more relatively recently, as I as um, you guys shared in my little bio, which is, by the way, always weird to listen to somebody talk about you in that way. But anyhow, um, I've been in the space of social work for 20 years. And my some of my earliest work was with, with foster care and adoption, where, of course, you can imagine there's a lot of grief and loss um, issues there. So in some ways, um, grief and loss and empathy practices have always been a part of my life. But definitely, um, this reimagining grief and the podcast is just in the last two years, one to two years. But I've, every piece of work that I've done over the course of my career has been um, really touched and involved grief. And also, this might have be the case for you, Joshua, even before you started doing, you know, your PhD or whatever. But I became the person after my husband died that everybody else sent their new friends who had a loss to, you know, I kind of became like, whatever, the grief whisperer or like the, Oh, talk to Lisa. She'll know what to say. Mm-hmm. So I've sort of been doing it informally for a while, I guess.
1: And do you find life more fulfilling or less or it just different? Cause it's almost like you have two, two lives, right? The one prior, yeah. like under 40 and the one when you're over 40, like how do you yeah. see that in your life? Yeah.
2: That's really interesting. That's a really interesting question. I mean, I do think about death and loss in our lives and grief and in the before and the after. There was definitely my life before Eric, and I actually had two lives. I sort of had before Eric, and then I had before the last year when he was sick, but we didn't know what was wrong, and then the after. You know, I think my life, in some ways, this is going to maybe sound weird to your listeners, I am able to access joy and delight and amazement now in this post-era, in this 40s era post losing my husband so much more than i did i think in my younger years and i think because of the work that i do and i don't mean my work at reimagining grief i mean my own emotional work that i've done on my grief and really attending to my emotions all the hard ones all the really sucky ones that come with grief because i actually like let them in and deal with them i'm so much better able to access joy and delight and amazement and Um, in ways that I don't think I ever really could. I think I was living kind of a more flattened emotional life. Does that make sense? Does that resonate for you guys?
1: Yeah, that makes total sense. And it's interesting. I always find that so interesting because you're in such a difficult position with grief where you have all these emotions and you're trying to get back to the normal, right? What you used to be what yeah. you're saying is that when you do the work, you actually can be a different person and something that actually can carry more joy and also hold sadness at the same yeah, time.
2: absolutely. And I also think something you mentioned there is, is something that I think is a myth, in my opinion, that I think we need to be a little careful about when we talk about sort of the work we do in grief and healing and whatever terms. Some people use the word recovery. Some people use the word healing, journey, et cetera, and which is you're not you're, we're always, whether death or not is in our lives, we're always changing. Our normal is always changing. We just have this um, blinders on that we think things are always going to be the same. And so I think it's, we have to be careful about saying we're trying to get back to some kind of normal. Cause the truth is when you have a tremendous loss or for all of us who are going through collective grief in this time of the pandemic, we aren't going to get back to a normal. We're going to create a new normal. Yeah. And it, And this new normal of my life right now really comes with a lot of joy. And it's been one of the biggest surprises, to be honest, in my work and in my journey, in my own personal work and my professional work, to see the way people who have the courage to kind of get dig deep in the emotions and sit with them and learn from them, because really emotions are just information, they're able to find joy and silliness and amazement in ways... You know, I never appreciated a sunset before, as an example, maybe trivial, but boy, I sure do now.
1: Right. Yeah. It's like you appreciate the more simple things where before you need to maybe go mm-hmm. buy a Louis Vuitton bag or like <laughs> exactly get the front row of the Raptor seats to get that kind of level of uh, enjoyment. But now it's like small things are doing everything. So every day you can have those those moments where before a yeah. lot of people, I need to save this amount of money to then go here to get that moment. But you're saying, no, you can have that moment right now.
2: Absolutely. It's really accessible to you. And I think the interesting thing is a lot of people say that and they think it's a cliche like when you have something bad happen to you, then you appreciate life. And I would say the the truth is it takes work. It's not just having a bad event or a hard event or a traumatic event happen to you that allows you to sort of access joy and Savor the simple things. I think it's actually the intentional, you know, psychological, emotional, sometimes body healing work that you do that allows you to do that. So it's not just like a bad thing happens, boom, now you appreciate things. I think it takes, takes. I call it grief work, you know, it takes the work of grief.
1: Yeah. It takes, you said that, that courage to face your emotions and do the work. Like with anything, yeah. like school, like anything that I think valuable, it takes time and effort into pursuing that, like any goal. Yeah. So I'm glad that you are able to put that work into your own self to be able to come out a different person mm-hmm. and something that can help other people in the world collectively in times of distress. And we're in one right now with the collective grief as you were just mentioning. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you're seeing maybe in your clients or what you're seeing in the world that maybe people need to be aware of when it comes to this moment in time.
2: Yeah, boy, aren't we in this, we're in a bizarro world, I think it feels a little bit like now. But I I do think it is, um, I think we're experiencing grief. And I think what's interesting is, it makes um, work like that you guys are doing and that I'm doing more relevant than ever. And I'm sort of in some ways grateful, because I think we're finally maybe going to get more attention and visibility to real honest conversations about grief, because more people are being forced to, you know, reckon with it, as it were. I think we're seeing grief because in in some ways if i can share my metaphor about how i see grief is um our lives are i'm a narrative therapist you mentioned at the top of the show so i sort of see our lives as being constructed by story and so we have millions of experiences that happen to us throughout our lives and not a single one of those experiences have meaning but it's in the storying in the telling of the story that we create around each event that creates meaning, and so in many ways, our lives are stories, and we our stories are very intricately weaved with the people in our lives. And so, when a death loss happens, it's like the it's kind of akin. This is the metaphor to the manuscript of your life being shredded and gutted, and then handed back to you as if you are supposed to know how to rewrite and live. Life with no instruction and and no plot. Your character has changed your motivation if you want to take that metaphor to the end. so And then the emotions come up from that. That's why we have confusion and brain fog and anger and sadness and all the emotions that come around grief. And so when you think about that metaphor and then you think about the world that we are all living in right now, that's the sort of framework from which I'm saying we're experiencing a grief, a collective grief. So We all had this narrative that we had a life in the West. We have a very capitalistic, you know, sort of system. We all go to work. We, as you said, by Louis Vuittons, we travel, we do whatever we want. We have a sense of freedom and we spend a lot of our time in the future. Like you were alluding to, I'm going to get through this month at work and then I'm going to go on vacation. And we plan, we spend a lot of time in the future. And what this pandemic has shown us is you have this moment. That's it. Nobody can, nobody's, Booking plane tickets. Nobody's making plans for weddings, probably even, or they're having to change their plans for those kinds of things. Um, you know, we so people are having lo- other kinds of losses too—not just future possibility loss, but they're also having loss of job, safety, security, sometimes health and ability. And then, of course, and this is where my heart really breaks: is there are people who are losing people. And then aren't even able to do this practices and ceremonies like funerals in ways that helps begin the healing and the grief journey. And that's why I think it's really important for us to see like this time and this moment as grief. And the one thing I'll I'll just add, I want to say, and maybe we can talk about this, you guys. I don't know what you guys are seeing in your work. Because we're all going through this collective grief, I'm really wanting to all of us to just take a pause, take a chill pill on this like, be productive, be happy, use this time energy that I see out in the world on social media. And I'm not saying don't be grateful and don't be happy, but we have this culture of busyness and productivity and a culture obsessed with happiness generally. And I'm seeing it come out right now because everybody's so scared, rightly so. This is a really scary time. But I don't think that does any of us a certain... I think it does us all a disservice emotionally because we're all feeling stressed and anxious and sad and bad and angry and resentful, but we're being inundated with these messages like be busy, be sharp, be productive, but we're all going through a trauma. We're having brain fog. It makes sense if we're sad. And I think I want to just invite everybody to just give themselves permission, kind of find some grace and loving kindness for themselves to not be productive if that's not where you're at, or not be practicing a hundred gratitudes a day, or I don't know. Are you seeing that in Ontario and in your? I mean, yeah. I know we're a global community, but do yeah, you see sure. that kind of energy happening right now in the face of grief?
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I think it's a very apt metaphor. Um, you know, I myself often find myself thinking that, like, wow, I feel like I'm in a movie. And I think uh, yeah. you hit it on the head with that. Like, this is a movie that the script has changed. You know, we're, the, the, we're faced with a, a yeah. changing script and a changing plot line. And it's like, you know, like you said, those, those future goals, those f- future hopes and wishes, are, are they're not the same anymore. They're changing. And that's a real yeah. challenge for a lot of people, all of us included. And it's like, how do we now reframe this script, reframe this movie, moving forward where we're still maintaining our our hero, our heroine presence, and we're still the stars and we're still doing what we need to do in this movie and not succumbing to the kind of, uh, you know, turning this into a horror movie. (laughs) But no, (laughs) um, I totally totally agree with you in terms of, there's a lot of people who, there's a lot of um, information, a lot of slogans, a lot of videos about, you know, keeping the Mm. action going. It's like, you know, keep that hamster on that hamster wheel. Keep it turning. And it's like, that's fine. Action's important. Positive action's important. But like, Mm -hmm. I think we miss the reflection period of before the action, thinking about what's going on, reflecting on that, and then acting. And I think sometimes it's just like, well, just get up and go. Do your push-ups. Do this. You know, (laughs) like, be active.
3: Exactly, And it
0: it puts a lot of pressure on people, and, and probably because they haven't, Had They haven't given themselves the opportunity to reflect, to chill, to relax, to do those things, to get them to a stage where they can then plan and then act. Um, And and I think that's just a a symptom of our culture as it is. Like, you know, we're go, 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 act, act, act.
2: Absolutely. You hit it really on the head. It's like that's already, even in normal times, that's our sort of cultural default. And so, and there's lots of reasons we do that. Of course, it fits very well with our capitalist system, you know, our economic system. And I would argue it allows us to escape doing the hard emotional work that we have to do in our day-to-day lives. It's like when I'm having bad feelings, well, too bad, don't have time for that. Got to go do my hundred push-ups or I got to go, you know, learn how to sew or speak Spanish or do whatever, you know, whatever you're going to do. And so we do it to ourselves. You know what I mean? Like we use that, as an escape, but then culture and the culture reinforces and celebrates. If you think of who are the people who are celebrated, it's the people who go, go, go. And that's in our daily lives. And then when we're faced with really hard feelings, which I would say is another cultural thread um, that's amplified right now, which is our cultural obsession with happiness only, and that every other feeling is really a is almost like a character flaw. And if you're not happy, then you're just not doing something right. You know, that's sort of just a general sort of um, way in which we act in the world, not even during grief. And so keeping busy allows us to not attend to all those things because we're really discouraged from having any other emotion um, than happiness. And if you have that other emotion, there's a real urgency to hurry up and fix it. Right, you know, and I think the thing that's particularly interesting about this type of grief, which I think many people who face, for instance, the loss of loved one through um, prolonged chronic illness or Alzheimer's experience for sure, I had a guest on my show who um, has watched a family member die over a course of a long time from Alzheimer's, is this loss, this collective grief we're experiencing right now, is really protracted. It's not. Like a one time thing you were mentioning, we can't really be making plans right now, well, we still can't be making plans, you know we you know we thought, well, okay, in three weeks we can get back to normal, and then it was like, well, maybe in two months we can get back to quote unquote normal, and now we're all i mean I was just thinking like, I wonder if I'm not going to get on a plane in twenty twenty, which will be the first time since I was ever in my life
0: yeah, right? and it it's something that like obviously because it's we're in the middle of it and we're dealing with it it's very easy to kind of dwell on the negatives and the downsides. Yeah. Um, but it's also something that, you know, we can start to look at how we can, again, change the script, and narrative of this movie to, yeah. to look at the positives and the, the, the uh, possibilities of positives and, and changing the way we do things, you know, it's tough. And it's sad and like, hey, how are we going to be in restaurants and how are we going to do movie theaters all right, well, there's possibilities for, for different things that, that can come up. And, and that's just, you know, that, that's something that, you know, you have to do it. I mean, I, for my yeah, sanity, for yeah. all of our sanities, you know, uh, moving forward and, and, and planning and, and thinking and reflecting and, and about this in that type of positive way, rather than, you know, like, like we've been saying, uh, just act and doing it and, you know, whatever, and, and learning to knit and all this. Uh, with, mm-hmm. I mean, not, nothing against knitting. No,
2: I mean, I don't. So I wish I could. My mom is probably still disappointed that I didn't learn how to knit. But, you know, something you said is really important. I think, you know, I I want to encourage us all to slow down enough so that we can have both experiences so that we can feel the sad, the disappointment, and so that we can have the space to find the silver linings, the creativity, the pivots, the ways in which this might be a welcome opportunity for us to try a craft or change careers or do whatever. So I think it's not an either or, and I think that's the messaging that I'm seeing out there, either like, hey, man, I just want to be sad. Let us be sad or be super productive and see this as a blessing. And I think the truth is we have to hold space for this to be all of those things. And you can't do that unless you slow down. I also want to make a point like this is also has a lot of privilege to this conversation. So there's a lot of people who are already oppressed in our kind of world who already had financial or other difficulties that they were straining and dealing with. And they don't have necessarily the space or the privilege to kind of do this kind of emotional work or slow down because they might still be having to do, you know, 72 hour shifts in a row, et cetera, depending on if they're like, you know, a healthcare worker or something else. So I just also want to name that regardless of what position you were in before you started this. Before we started sort of this collective era of grief, um, there's opportunities for all of us to kind of hold space for our entire spectrum of emotions and then find the beauty in all of them, the hard ones and the good ones.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and you're absolutely right with that. You know, there are children right now who don't have Internet access and who want to, you know, do the school thing online, but, but they don't have the resources and, and again, that just talks about this pandemic exposing those flaws in our system. And, and hopefully we can reframe that and look at that as, as our, our areas where we need to come up with better solutions, better solutions for those people who, who don't have those resources, you know, um, for long term uh, care facilities that we're clearly we're seeing don't have the resources to deal with something like this, you know, nursing homes and whatnot. And yeah. it's like, okay, guys, we've we dropped the ball on this. How can we move forward and now support our elderly, support the seniors, uh, those people in nursing homes better, uh, people who are cashiers or store clerks or nurses and, or teachers, who, people who weren't getting paid very well before. And, and now we're relying on those people like, man, grocery store clerk, like, I can't believe it like hero, just, yeah. you know, heroes and and they're doing their jobs and they're Except
2: they're not heroes. That's the sort of irony. It's yeah, like we're treating yeah. them finally like heroes, but they were there doing an important service to, for us before this. And I think that's a bigger metaphor really of any kind of loss or grief, which is like, it is something that's so life shifting or story shifting that it is always an invitation for us to look at, Hey, how was I living my life before this? What was I noticing and not noticing in my life? What was I appreciating and not appreciating? And this pandemic is like a huge manifestation or magnification, excuse me, of that whole process that happens to each of us at the individual level when we're faced with grief, you know, a death loss or some other kind of tragic loss.
1: Yeah, no, it's uh, it nice actually just listening to you guys chat because I think when you say pro- productivity, my definition of that is so much different than I think the world's right? Because I find inner work probably the most productive, <laughs> and so it's like yeah. the opposite of what external. It's almost like this external productivity in the sense of doing things or banking money or going to work, like all these extra stuff is all external, but it's the internal that people avoid, and and that's why I find um, my pro- like when I say when someone asks, "Have you been productive this week?" I'm like, "I wonder how like have I, have I sat with my emotions? Have I?" looked at sort of my dreams. Have I, have I done that sort of proactive work? Okay. Yeah. Then my life has been proact- proact- uh, like productive, it's not really that external thing of like, how many courses did you take or how much, right. you know, any of that, how many podcasts have you listened to this week? You know, it has nothing to do yeah. with that, but <laughs> I, it's all about that reframing of that definition, right? Like on how you see that word. And I think that's a great starting point in how people yeah. see that word, because that determines your mood. Because if you think you're not being productive, but really you are. You know, like, let's, uh, let's relook at that, because other people see differently.
2: I'm so, so glad you brought that up. That's absolutely huge. And I hope more people are, are going to just pause here for a moment and take that in, which is, this really is an invitation for us to think very differently. I was just talking with a dear friend about this, actually, about how we describe productivity, and about the value of work. And I don't just mean paid labor work, I mean, the exact kind of work you're talking about, which is, if we're going to really kind of make changes in our own lives, but also sort of at this global level, which I think a lot of people are aspiring to, everybody's starting at the place of like policy changes and shifts. But I think we're going to be so much better off if people become productive in the kind of work that you're talking about, which is that inner work because so much of our problematic systems and reactions are because we're not all sort of doing our inner work and we're reacting and being caught up in systems and stories that are already built. So I love that you are modeling for everybody that productivity can look much less like what we see in terms of you know, widgets in the factory floor and much more about the emotional work that we do. I have been a long time meditator and I do guided meditations as well, but I have been um, consistently doing 30-minute silent meditations every day, really, for the last about eight months. But I've been like upping my time during this time because I've been really finding like when I get caught up in the work and clients and did I record the next episode of the podcast or did I write another article? I'm like, okay, I'm I'm using a metric that's really not helpful for me right now. And what is the metric I need to use? And that's really about the inner work.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We've gotten caught up with the uh, material value system and just how we measure value and what what we value in this system, you know, coming from just the way the, the economies are set up, the way businesses yeah. and governments are set up. And uh, it's something that like, before this happened, there's been traces of changing things. Like I know workplaces are trying to be more um, accommodating to their employees and trying to understand the work-life balance importance. I don't think it was happening quick enough, uh, but I, I think that that is something that, hey, there's a lot of people in this world and, and society who their lives are built around just keeping busy, you know, going to work early in the morning at 6am coming back at 6pm, you know, maybe having dinner with the family for an hour, you know, putting on the TV or the hockey game and then going to bed. And it's like, when is, when is there a time for you to sit alone with your thoughts? I mean, I know, I know people who they can't be silent. Like they need to have a TV on while they're cooking or they need to, you know, have a TV on while they go to bed. But like, there's all these things that where people noise is, is important and, and you know, this is a time when you have to ask yourself that question. It's like, why? Why do I need these things? Why can't I sit in silence? And then for a lot of people, it's like, because then your thoughts creep in. <laughs> like some right. people really want to. And
2: we're not practiced at that. We're not practiced yeah. at really holding space for our thoughts. And, and because our thoughts, of course, are deeply connected to our emotions. And we're definitely not practiced at holding space for our emotions, so yeah, yeah, I absolutely it's, it's love that,
0: that. Uh, un un it's that garden that that that's just got weeds growing in it and that that's what your mind is. And if, if you haven't tended to it and, and pulled out those weeds and tended to your mind with, with the negative thoughts that bounce around, the positive thoughts and whatever it is, if you're not in control, not if you're not aware of them and able yeah. to kind of pierce through all that, that's a difficult spot to be because then it builds and it builds and it builds you know, you keep living the rat race and then something like this happens and it can be very devastating, I'm sure for a lot of people.
2: Because we don't have that experience. I love that you're bringing this up. You know, I've been writing a lot recently about, I mean, this is the work of course I've done as a therapist and social worker over my career, but is that like, we keep setting it aside. Like I'll get to that later. I'll deal with the thoughts later. I'll deal with the emotions later, but later never comes until you know, some you know, major event happens and now you realize they've been looming there all along and you've got to deal with it and you have no practice, you know, at it. I recently um, was writing, been using this metaphor um, to think about how we can maybe use this time, but I was saying this long before the time of the pandemic, but that we really need to be treating all of our emotions as um, visitors. Emotions are information and we tend to treat our emotions, especially the hard ones that we don't like to deal with, um, as if they are coming over, unpacking their bags and moving in, you know, like they're that family member who's trying to take over your guest room permanently. And I really think about, um, invite people to think about our emotions as visitors stopping by for a cup of coffee and the analogy goes if you let them in for a cup of coffee and ask them what they need to tell you what you need to learn from them they will go but if you keep the door closed every time you go to open your front door or peek open that curtain that emotion is going to be looming there and now that emotion is creating such a dark shadow over your porch it's what keeps you from actually being able to experience go out in the world and experience joy and delight and amazement and the truth is all of our emotions are visitors the quote unquote, good ones, the happy ones, the ones we want and the bad ones. And so if we can just treat them all as visitors over for a cup of coffee, um, we'd be much better. That's how I've done the work I've done. And that's why I'm able to sort of be in the space I am, which is experiencing joy so much more often is because I'm treating all of my emotions over for a cup of coffee. And so when they show up, instead of like slamming the door and barricading it with furniture, you know, I'm like, okay, here we go. I'm going to open the door, invite them in for a cup of coffee and see what they have to say. And it's really been a game changer for me.
1: Do you feel joy is an emotion or do you think it's just a state that occurs when all the other emotions are sort of just passing through?
2: You know, I don't know if joy, and I wouldn't know that I'm sure there's some sort of neurobiological, I know there's that emotion wheel Plutnik did. I, I wish I had that up in front of me, but um I think of joy as kind of, I think all of our vocabulary for emotions are very limited in terms of how we describe them in general. I would say joy is sort of the manifestation of lots of different emotion, emotions. Is that sort of what you're asking? That it's sort of like gratitude, present being present, awareness, et cetera, all of those things happening, appreciation. It's lots of different sort of subtle, more complex things that are happening. And then the experience is joy.
1: Yeah. Cause I was just curious if when, when you're just in the house and nothing, everyone's done their cups of tea and, and leave, what's, what's that experience? Like, what is that? And you're saying you're in joy a lot. So I'm like, oh, maybe it's joy, but maybe yeah. it's just peaceful. Like um, I'm not sure what that is.
2: Yeah, I think it's more, I think when the visitors come and go, I just feel, I think that's a different experience than joy. I'm just saying in general in my life, I'm experiencing joy, sort of, I have access to sort of awe and joy and, and, you know, appreciation more than I did because I think I sit with all those other emotions. I think the feeling that I have to be honest when, now that I've become more practiced at letting my visit, my emotions come by for a cup of coffee is There was so much fear wrapped up in my life before, because even before all of this work that I've told you about, I actually survived a couple of violent um, traumatic events when I was young too. So I've been doing a lot of emotional work kind of my whole life. And so I used to treat some of those hard emotions like, As if I let them in a little bit, they would swallow me whole and I would sort of lose my mind and become crazy. You know, I just felt like I was going to be overwhelmed. And I think the feeling that I get now as I welcome in the hard feelings and then watch them go is a real sense of sort of, um, I don't know, autonomy or ability. It's like that I'm more in control of my own life. I've recognized, I think I was giving away so much control because I was thought I was doing the right thing by keeping all those hard feelings at bay but in some ways I was giving up my own agency over my own emotional life. And by sort of shifting the way I think about um, attending to my own emotions, all of them, I feel so much more agency. And I think when we all feel agency, we all tend to feel better, quote unquote, whatever, however you want to define better. Does that answer your question? Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, I think, I think, uh, I think you're absolutely right. I think, um, fear and anxieties like it's an unknown unless you face it head on yeah but it builds and it builds and that's a very daunting mountain for a lot of people to climb for all of us to climb um but when we do it's it's like we've been through something and then you feel pride almost that like you know yeah i overcame that fear um i, I went there and and i looked at that whatever it is that part of my past that was just terrible that i haven't looked at for a long time but but you know i I changed the narrative of that past and i've overcome uh that issue and now i can look at life in a different way and that that fear that was a mountain isn't 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 that mountain anymore i think that's a very apt uh, analogy and that's a very good point uh moving forward i think we all sit with some sort of fears whatever it is even the fear of you know again losing someone that you love dearly um you Know until it happens, you push that aside and, and not want to deal with that potential of someone leaving, right? Or someone, um, dying, or, or you know, what have you.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. And I think, um, it just really allows you to feel like the more you do it and you practice it in little moments because feelings come and go relatively quickly in the scheme of our lives. Yeah, and, and it's also, do
0: it, oh, go ahead, please. Yeah, it's also like. What prevents us from moving forward and just doing anything in life, you know, is the fear. And often, like a lot of people smarter than me always tend to say, like, well, think about the worst case scenario, because it's not as bad as you always, you make it out to be. Right. Like, You're know, really I, good at
2: catastrophizing, for sure. Yeah,
0: like, you know, if, if I want to change jobs, like if I'm miserable at my job, and, you know, I know in my heart that this isn't for me, and I should change jobs. A lot of people don't. Out of fears. And it's like, what's the worst that can happen? Yeah, you lose the job. Okay, can you make it work? You know, how long will be out of work? Like, when you really think about it and face that fear head on, it might not be so bad. Like, you know, sometimes it's the worst thing of staying in that job that you don't want. People will do that rather than face the fear of leaving that job and potentially the ambiguity of not knowing is so daunting for a lot of people. But yeah. like, it's, you know, if you just got to sit down and rationally think about this and be like, you know what? Yeah, I- I'm miserable now. That's the thing. I'm miserable now, yeah. and like, it's it's that's. I think that goes on in life. People don't lo- people don't leave relationships that suck because they're so scared of like maybe not finding another person or what's gonna happen after this. Well, you're in a relationship that's miserable that you need to leave, and you're just not because of the
1: the unknown. And this is a very difficult time for that because let's say you do have a job or you're in a relationship that you don't want, everything's shut down. You, it's, I can only imagine the difficulty if someone wants to leave or wants to change and they can't because of the basically lockdown of everything. You can't go rent something new. You can't really, there's no jobs, they're just hiring, right? So there's a lot of different things that are impacting people from even making that decision or that, that step. Where before it might have been a lot easier, and now they're really forced in this position that they really, you know, can't get out of. And it's, I think, this is sort of that collective grief. There's a lot of things that we just can't do, even though maybe they have the courage to, but there's just not the resources available anymore, like there once was. You
2: make an absolutely great point, and I think that we are in the most unique circumstance I think any of us have faced in our lives, and it's compounding all of those issues that we were already facing. To your point, and so given that major shifts in some ways is your, your relationship just because you physically aren't, you can't go somewhere or etc., is again an invitation then to do the kind of inventory work that you were talking about, sort of that internal, what is the, you know, when I do have choice and I do have agency, what do I want to do? What does matter to me? How do I actually feel? Not like the thoughts on the surface, but deep down, how do I feel? Because that's sort of what all we have access to right now is some of that inner work until things shift and they will eventually, and we have other kind of actual practical steps that we can take
1: I, I feel for a lot of people who are going through the the grief right now all the different types of grief because Absolutely. it's very hard to really understand where the emotions are coming from like what's really pulling at it because it all seems like maybe you're projecting on a relationship. Maybe it's a bad relationship or maybe it's a decent one and it's actually pretty good for you, but you're just so anxious in other areas. You look at it because you're just trying to project all that anxiety somewhere to sort of make you feel a little bit better inside and get rid of some of that energy. But really it's based on maybe you can't go to work or you can't see your friends. You know, like it's just really being more, I think, yeah. um, aware that there's a lot of things being pulled on you to cause that reaction that's going on it's not just one thing there's so many things going on financial strain and you have so the isolation the boredom maybe and then also like you're sitting with yourself and that's scary in itself you have all these emotions you you haven't never dealt with they're coming up to the surface past traumas coming up because you're feeling because this is triggering that so there's so many different things that hopefully people can understand and hopefully even get counseling in some way i know it's different now you provide one-on-one is it counseling right
2: I do. I do. I call it grief guide. So I'm not Mm -hmm. doing practicing like traditional therapy anymore because I do so much other work. Um, So I, but I am doing kind of a short, kind of short sessions, maybe about five max, just helping to ground people in the, like naming it as grief, understanding how they're, you know, what processes they are going to, what are their resources, their resiliency, and kind of doing that kind of grounding work with people and helping people sort of, if it's the beginning of their journey, help them start to sort of see kind of how this journey might unfold and what are the tools and resources they might need to navigate. Excuse me. And for others who maybe this, as you just mentioned, I actually have somebody who's coming to me next week who this is all sort of bringing up old grief around the loss of a parent. And so I'm doing some grounding work with them. So, yeah. and, And of course now it's, you know, Zoom you know, or, or, you know, whatever platform people use. Um, I do think this is a time, there are time, there are places and spaces more than ever to be able to get support even um, from your own home. And I think, and now's the time to do it, not just saying necessarily with me, but whatever the resources are for you that um, work in your community. Although I see people from all over the world, obviously we can all, all of many of us can see people from, you know, across the world, but Uh, I think it's, yeah, it's that time to sort of really attend to the stuff in a lot, a lot of people. Um, And this is true of any grief. Um, When you have a new grief loss, you know, a new death loss, let's say it brings up, even if you sort of done work on that original grief, please don't judge or blame yourself that this new grief is actually bringing up new emotions, new reflections, new experiences. You will always be having new a new take on those sort of old identities and those old stories because you're constantly re- rebuilding. So, I think my invitation is for all of us to not sort of beat yourself up or judge yourself. I hear this often people saying, like, gosh, I thought I dealt with this already, yeah. as if it's a one and done. And the truth is, in my opinion, when it comes to grief, well, when it comes to really any of our emotional work, but when it comes to grief work, we're doing, if this was a significant relationship that's lost, we're going to be doing grief work in some form or fashion for the rest of our lives. And so to not judge any kind of resurgence that comes up when new grief happens. And I think this collective grief experiences is, is definitely triggering for a lot of people, um, to just kind of find patience and compassion and curiosity like huh i wonder why this is coming up what do i need to look at and take a more gentle approach
1: yeah i like that and said like the the help we can get is a little different because you don't have that you know in in person and it's a challenge for you know elderly to even get into the technology or to even use the computer so yeah i know there's there's so much going on but i'm hopeful for humanity that they'll find their way so given like everything that's been going on in your life and the emotions that you've dealt with, I'm curious for you to go back and talk about how you dealt with the grief of your husband that passed. Cause that was the one that really got you seeing maybe more emotions than you wanted to and to sort of deal with such a traumatic event in someone's life. So, like, can you go back to that moment in time and how you process that? So.
2: Um, So my husband, uh, Eric, in 2011 died from a uh, brain tumor that had been misdiagnosed for the over the course of a year. And the reason I bring that particular part of the aspect of his death up is that there in some ways I was grieving Eric for a year before he died. And a lot of people go through that, for instance, when a loved one gets a diagnosis and they're going through treatment, but it doesn't look good. And so they sort of know it's coming, Right. And so that we call that sort of that anticipatory loss um, for me and for my daughter, we just knew he was behaving differently and acting weird. But doctors didn't really know what to do, and they were dismissing it, um, only to find out when they finally ran a test after almost a year of uh, brain scan that he had a grapefruit sized brain tumor that had shifted his stem. and they actually didn't understand how he was still walking and talking. So we sought consultation. He ended up having. 15-hour surgery and um, woke up long enough for me to chat with him and then slipped into basically a coma. And another surgery and a lot of testing later revealed that um, because of the tumor and then the shifts in the surgery, he had a series of catastrophic strokes that he was not going to recover from. And the reason I bring up the details of his death is, again, there's that Ambiguous loss that I was feeling for that year before he died, because he became, because which happens often with brain tumors, he became a kind of person that I didn't recognize, right? And our entire lives, um, he was a different kind of father, a different kind of husband, and our lives were very uncertain. And then when the it came time to um, r- recognizing that he was not going to wake up, we had only just in the course of the diagnosis to the to the surgery, you know, that one week period, had the conversation about extraordinary measures and he did not want to be um, kept alive and so I had to make the excruciating decision to take him off life support and um, chose to get into bed with him and laid with him for the eight hours until he passed.
3: So the value for me of being there when Eric passed was that I was able to I think kind of act weirdly to what you and I you guys and I were talking about earlier was I got to pause in those final hours and do have some conversations and do some storying and remembering and being with them in a way that I hadn't, because from the minute of the diagnosis to that moment, there was just constant go, do, fix, find a solution. And so that was really the beginning, I think, for me of my grief work and my starting to understand that I was going to have to, there's no choice that I was going to have to, start attending to some emotions that I have never experienced before, but that I was going to have to just figure out how to um, handle. I think for me, especially because I was then a single mom to a seven-year-old, I knew I didn't have a choice. There was no, you know, breaking down and checking out, you know, because I had somebody else I was responsible for. So I think that work is, you know, that grief work, that emotional work began right away. Um, and you know, I'm a social worker and therapist, so obviously I had done a lot of my own work in terms, you know, when you go through training as a social worker, you have to do a lot of your own sort of emotional work. So I think there were some ways in which I had some advantages, but to be honest, I think there's a lot of ways that that really disadvantaged me because I have a sense back to that story narrative is I have a story that I'm a helper and that I'm a fixer and that I have to have my stuff together because I'm there to help other people. And so it was very disconcerting to sort of look at myself and my character and realize I don't have it together because grief makes your brain fog and you have fear and anxiety and you don't sleep and you don't eat well and all the things that happen. And so I think there was some ways in which um, I held myself to a standard that maybe not everybody does, um, if that makes sense. And then. Um, I was called back to work within two weeks by the, head. I was a clinical director of a family services organization at the time. And uh, my boss there was a lot of turnover at the senior level, and they needed another senior level staff back in the office. So I actually went back to work after two weeks, which now when I look back, I think that um, in some ways a little bananas, but also I'm not sure what else I would have done. And um, there was something really healing and soothing to show up at work and still be providing support to other people in the therapeutic realm and as a supervisor. So that's sort of how that, how the grief work began. I don't know if there was some specific question you had about what that looked like for me, but no. I will say my dream, my dream started right away.
1: Oh, that, the dream. that's interesting. Cause we'll get to that, but yeah, yeah. I really want to sort yeah. of see your, your narrative of your loss yeah. in, a, in a quick snapshot. Yeah. So I know we've talked about a lot of it, but I think it's interesting how going back to work, there's probably benefit as having the model of being a helper you're helping them work helping people and that probably relieves some um of the uncomfortableness of needing help yourself right but i'm curious my question I i guess to follow with that was did you ever seek help for yourself
0: oh
3: yes absolutely so um yes i do think helping other people allows you to sort of um feel more grounded. And also because I've got to go, there was something that I knew that was normal. Like I knew how to do that and everything else in my life had turned upside down. So in some ways there was something very soothing about going back to work because it was like something that I knew how to do. And the rest of my life, I didn't know how to do. But I was already, because as I mentioned, um, because of the impact of the brain tumor and it had changed so significantly, Eric's behavior, and then our entire family life for that previous year, uh, we had already, all of us in our family, been in some form or fashion of therapy before he died. And so I was thankful that I already had a fellow social worker who was my therapist um, to lean on and to, to seek support from. And we did also use a, there was a community nonprofit that did like support groups for kids. Um, so my my daughter got into that support group additionally, and then they had a corresponding one for adults. So I'm absolutely a believer um, I'm a believer in everybody finding their own path or what works for them. But I do believe that being part of communities like support groups and doing therapy one-on-one in whatever form or fashion that therapy looks like, coaching or grief, counseling, et cetera, um, is hugely helpful for people. And I experienced it to be incredibly helpful for me because it was a safe space to um, really let out all the what I felt like were crazy thoughts and emotions that I was having and at an intensity level, and in a way that you just cannot do with your friends, because your friends want to fix it for you. They want to make it okay and make it better. And so they're, we're not very well trained as human beings to show up and hold space and bear witness. We live in a culture that's fix, fix, fix. And so, and we hate to see, of course, our friends and family member in pain. I do too. And so our sort of natural instinct is to try to make okay and fix um which isn't really what grief doesn't need fixing in my opinion grief is a normal response to loss and so what we really need especially is for my I needed and I believe this to be true for most people especially early in your grief you need safe spaces where people aren't trying to fix you who aren't trying to correct your crazy thoughts or your wild emotions and I even put crazy and wild in air quotes there um you need somebody to just hold that space. And that's what I think the beauty of, you know, having one-on-one therapy offers people is that safe space to not um, be, feel like judged or feel censored. I don't know if you guys experience this, but I often, when my friends would check in with me and they were, um, my friends were amazing. They brought food and left it on the porch. Thank God. Otherwise, I don't think my daughter would have ate for the first couple of weeks. And they did all kinds of wonderful things, but. When they would come check in on me, I found myself censoring, answering honestly for two reasons. One was I didn't want to hear them try to make things okay for me, and I didn't want them to think that I was crazy. And also because they were so emotional, because they were very close with Eric too, and they lost him. So it was it was friends are great, family member are great for lots of things, and I'm not saying don't rely on your friends and family for grief support. And I certainly did rely on mine a lot, and there's something unique about somebody who wasn't close to the loss and who has the kind of training to hold that space and to not um, jump into fix-it mode. And that was hugely important to me. And and I stayed, I mean, I've been in therapy off and on, you know, since that time as I need it. And I am definitely a proponent of it um, when I need, you know, tune ups and reminders about um, how I take that next step forward on, on the grief journey.
1: That's amazing to hear, and I'm glad you're able to showcase that a little bit more and, and help people understand why sometimes it is important to see a counselor or someone else in the area of grief other than your friends and family, because everything you said is yeah. so true. My, my question to you is, I want to get to the dreams you had. You said you had them soon after uh, his death. Could you talk about what dreams you were having and how that impacted you?
3: Yeah, man. I was just writing about this the other day, it's just, uh, so he died in 2011, so it'll be nine years um, this summer, and I'm trying to think of when they started, but I'm, I am i want to say within the first weeks, I mean, now it feels a little, you know, you guys know, you know, the fog of early grief is something, I feel like days and weeks and months passed, and I didn't even understand, you know, what day it was, but... The grief, the dreams that started in the beginning were exactly the same every time. It was really eerie. So I would go to sleep and I would be somewhere. And and by the way, it might be important to note, of course, this was my husband who died. So then I was going back to sleep in the bed that we had shared for our entire relationship and marriage. And so there was something very um, beautiful, but also painful about being in that same space without him there. So I'm sure that set me up to have some dreams in some ways. In addition to just grief dreams, and you, of course, are the expert at that. But so the dreams are the same, pretty much every time. We would be, I would be standing somewhere in my house, in our house, and Eric would walk in, and we would look at each other and smile and cry and hug and say, "Oh my God, it's just all been a really terrible mistake." And we would hug and laugh even and cry and just be like staring at each other, and then slowly. We both would be starting to look at each other and realize, oh, actually, it isn't a a mistake. You are really dead, and this is a dream. And so within my dream, I would have the realization that I was dreaming and that he really was dead. And then I would wake up, actually wake up, and realize all over again that he was dead and I had lost him. And it was devastating those dreams were so devastating because i'm sure I, I don't know i'd love your insight on it but i was trying to work out this impossible thing that happened that i really lost him and it can't be true but it really is true but it meant i was basically having to like lose him oh every time i had that dream i lost him twice over each time
1: yeah you're not the only one having those types of dreams and it's interesting because being lucid in that Moment changed the dream, you know. Like if you just would have had yeah. the dream, oh, it was all a mistake. A hug, you would. You may have, you know, of course, grieved when you woke up, but maybe not as intensely because you had those moments where it was just that pause of right. interaction. But because you noticed of the dream, then all of a sudden you had this crushing weight in the dream, and that carries forward also as you wake up. But yeah, it definitely you see that, especially in the beginning of the of people's dreams when they're dealing with loss. Yeah. They're trying to figure out first how the person's in the dream, but also you get those um, aspects where it's reminding you that the death is real. And there's probably it it must be doing some sort of grief work, you know, because you're thinking about your 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 brain's doing and working through your loss while it's sleeping. And so these moments, I'm guessing, is trying to help you process the reality of it all.
3: It all seems so impossible. You know, now with this, and I'd love to tell you about some of my other dreams because they transformed over the course of the last eight years and become much more pleasant. I look forward to them. I wish I had more of them, but I think that work that I was doing that you were talking about exactly which was like to something, you know, it was so incomprehensible what happened, even though I was there, I was physically with him when he took his last breath. But I think when something like so incomprehensible happens, our brain is just like trying to work it out and trying to like, crack open whatever shell it can in your brain to be like no this really did happen this isn't a mistake and it seems like that's what the cycle of my dream was was like just an effort to keep kind of chipping away at helping me somehow my psyche my consciousness my subconsciousness to understand that no he's really gone
1: yeah yeah so what was your other dreams that came afterwards
3: so those happened off and on, and I can, I'm trying to remember when I had the last one of those. But I haven't had that particular dream in a long time, thankfully. Um, but then some, some then they started to vary a little bit more, and definitely got less frequent. But then I started to have. I had a dream. I think I wrote about this on Reimagining Grief a couple months ago. It might have even been the one of the posts that you that allowed us to meet each other. Um, was we can, he. We were also again in a, I think in a house. I don't know if it was that house, but we were together indoors and we saw each other and he looked, and I've changed a lot my looks over the last eight years, but he still looked, you know, the Eric that he was. And I looked some semblance of what I looked like back then. And he knew that he was dead. No, excuse me. I knew he was dead, but I was so happy to see him. And I was... Um, Talking with him, and we were um, like, we were watching something amazing out the window, like I don't know, scattered shower, you know, like shooting stars or something. And I just said to him, "Oh my God, I want to remember this moment so much. I, I just like, I was feeling, I was have joyful in the dream. I was like, with Eric, we were watching this most amazing thing happen. It was like incredible." And I just remember saying out loud to him, like, I really want to remember this moment because I knew he was dead and this was a dream, but I still felt so good and I felt good in his presence. And I I was like, oh, I just really want to remember this moment. He's like, you will, you'll remember it. And I was like, he's like, don't worry, I'll help you remember. Because Eric, by the way, was always our memory keeper. He was the one who had a great memory for everything and I don't. And then I realized in my dream, he didn't know he was dead. And then in my dream, I had to tell him. Babe, you can't remind me because you're gone. And then I woke up.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And it was differently devastating than the other one. There, but, but there was that moment of joy, and I could be with him in my dream, even though I knew he was dead, but it was okay. But then there was sort of the heartbreak of having to tell him that he was gone. And I had kind of varying versions of that dream for a while. And then my most recent dreams are my absolute favorite, and I wish I would have them more. I'm going to ask you later for tips on if we can actually channel, bring these dreams to us. Um, is And these have happened, honestly, when I've had kind of some difficult like relationship issues in my life currently or whatever over the last couple of years. Um, and we show up again. I don't know why we're always indoors, but anyhow indoors and we're sitting on a couch and we're talking to each other and he knows he's dead and i know he's dead and we're in no rush to go anywhere and we are just sitting and having a conversation about life and i can feel his presence and we're hugging each other and like sitting on a couch and hugging and talking and he's saying you can stay here as long as you want and i feel very much like his presence is real and that i can stay there as long as i want and it doesn't feel like i'm escaping my life it just feels like I don't know. Like it's this safe welcome space that I get to come to Mm. and we get to stare at each other. And I got to tell him I love him so much. And he got to tell me he loves me so much and I could feel it in my dream. And when I woke up, I could still feel it. And it was just this place that I could go to. And there was no friction or no tension or no, like the rug being pulled out from under me. Mm. We were just it was a place we could visit with each other. And I've had that a couple of times and
1: it's amazing. Wow. That, that is, is something I guess. I, I like it. I like how you had those variations of the dream, because when you look mm-hmm. at it, you can really see how first, like the first one was really about the reality of the loss and those emotions. And then as you went forward, you could sort of see how you're doing in waking life and how you're able to handle your emotions, understanding that it's a dream, but it's now about the moment. Of sharing the this moment with the, uh, the individual and what a gift that is. And then at the end, it's like, you both realize, I was like, man, it's so cool. And how in your own way, like you showcased your own growth and where you are and the work you've done.
3: Wow. I didn't really think about it until I was telling the sequence, you know, just now when I was sort of telling the sequence of those, you know, how those dreams sort of unfolded over the last eight to nine years. That. I do think so. I do think it is a representation of um, the coming to an acceptance of it. And it it doesn't mean that I don't miss them terribly every day and that I don't have, you know, as I said, I don't believe we're like done, you know, doing that grief work. But I do think these dreams do seem to be a reflection of the kind of evolution or the transformation or, you know, that I've been on as I've, um, I really think about. I just have, I still have a husband and his name is Eric. And I just have a really different relationship with Eric than I did when he was alive. And I think the work of grief is about changing the relationship that we have with the person that we love.
1: Yeah. And maintaining that bond in whatever form or way that's most appropriate for you. And you can really see that. And I'm glad the dreams are helping you with that aspect. Of acknowledging, so you're acknowledging the loss, but you're continuing the bond, and that's what you see.
3: Yeah, I mean, I'd be curious to know from you too. It's like I wonder how much the dreams are themselves an affirmation of the work that I'm doing out here in the world, like sort of in in my waking life. How much that they are actually helping me feel differently in my waking life? Like, is it you you know unidirectional or multi directional, or is it just then the conclusion I can make from (laughs) it?
1: Well, it's definitely multi, yeah. because not yeah. only is it reflecting your waking life, but also it's helping you, and so it's impacting you to facilitate further growth, right? So it's, that's what I love yeah. about these dreams so much, especially those comforting ones, in the sense that it really can help people shift very quickly um, with some of the gains that they're making or some of the concepts that they're trying to hold true, and you can sort of see that with this, because now, also, your last memory of him isn't him dying anymore, it's these dreams which I think is really fascinating.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And I've had dreams about my close friend who died a few years later too. And those, because the relationships I think was different was different, but we kind of just get to visit with each other in, in our dreams. And he's the jokey, sarcastic Joe that he was in life. And I was with him when he died as well. And so, um, but because he died so many, he died about four years after Eric, um, I think I'd already done some of the other kind of work and relationships. And so the dreams that I have about Joe, um, are different. Are, never... are kind of started further down the further down the like road of that kind of course of dreams,
1: if that makes sense. Yeah. And they've never showed up together in a dream.
3: No, they haven't yet, which is interesting because they knew each other in life. Hmm. Um, we all used to tra- he was a sort of, Joe was kind of a family friend and he used to travel with us all the time. And Joe was a really interesting person because he um, knew Eric but he was one of the only people in my life who actually he was kind of my go-to person he was the person I could call it to in the morning when I couldn't sleep which I didn't sleep for the first couple of months and talk about stuff so he was sort of my grief support um, for, for you know a long while um, and so um, it was really interesting um, then to be there at his dead side when when he passed which we knew was you know, coming eventually because he had struggled with MD for, you know, the majority of his life. But um, he, yeah. And and I had a really special gift in a way being, being by his side because he was conscious and lucid unlike Eric and I had a really cathartic um, experience there. And I think that's part of what allowed, I might share that with you actually. I think that's part of what allowed me to maybe have a different um, set of dreams about. Joe and the grief that I felt about Joe. So when Eric passed, of course, he had been in a coma and he couldn't speak. And when Joe um, was in the hospital on his final days, myself and two other, and my brother and a friend were by his bedside. And he was, you know, 85 pounds at that point and pretty weak, but still talking. And I was holding his hand and by his face. And he looked at me and said, um, and we had been telling stories and just really trying to have be joyful in his presence because Joe liked to laugh and be joyful. He also liked to be sarcastic and grumpy, but you know, that's a story for another day. But Joe looked at me and said, Lisa, it's time for me to go. And I said, I know, Joe. It's okay. I love you. I'm here. And he said, No, Lisa, you don't understand. I mean, it's time for me to go. And I said, I know, Joe. I love you, and I'm here. And he passed away maybe within 15 seconds of that. And what I didn't realize until I was actually having a conversation with a fellow podcaster a few months ago was how cathartic that was because I didn't get to have that with Eric. And so I didn't get to tell Eric that it was okay that I was here and that I was going to be with him till the end. And I didn't get to hear him tell me that he needed to go now. And there was something really healing and as devastating as it was to have Joe die in my arms and to have twice in my life had people die um, by my side. There was such a gift and a catharsis, I think, in a way, because Joe was able to kind of give me, tell me what I, what Eric couldn't tell me. And I was able to tell Joe what I couldn't tell Eric. And I think that really fundamentally shifted I mean, it caused me to go into grief again, of course, losing Joe and brought up a lot of the grief around Eric. But in some ways, it also propelled my grief work forward because there was some healing in that experience that he, the gift in the way that he gave me.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you're able to look at that and compare because it gives you great insights moving forward into helping others. And you know, being able to have those opportunities to say what's truly on your mind, even to say that you love the the individual, is so important. And that's one thing I learned from after my dad died. I didn't get a chance to say that, and I had a dream where I was able to say it. So you can really sort of Mm. understand some of the importance and some of the issues people may feel by your own experiences and having multiple. You can see the changes in it, but also the dreams can really showcase maybe what you're longing for. how that's different. So I'm glad you're able to have, you know, those dreams and be able to continue that bond. And, and especially with Joe have those moments to tell you how he, how you felt, but also to hear how he felt about you. Cause I think that's just as important as so yeah. it's both, um, both ways. So I'm um, one of our last questions on the podcast. We always like to ask is if you could have a dream tonight of someone who has died, what would that dream look like?
3: Mm. Mm. Oh man. You got me thinking y'all. <laughs> Um, you know, I think I would just be outdoors. This is what I would dream. So not
1: my, indoors, um, are you Eric, sure? All your other dreams Not are indoors.
3: I'm, <laughs> I'm busting out, I'm busting out into the world, or probably because we have cabin fever right now, right? So that's probably why, but, um, Eric and I, um, we were living in Michigan at the time, most of our lives in Vermont when we were together, but we got married in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Beautiful, beautiful country out there. And we were supposed to return there for our 10-year wedding anniversary. And he died about a week after our nine-year wedding anniversary. So we didn't get to return. But that was, you know, again, we had sort of saved up thinking, oh, we have time, we'll do it for our 10-year anniversary. Uh, No, we don't have time. So I think if I got to have a dream about Eric tonight, we would be back on the trails in the Great Tetons, hiking, holding hands, looking at each other taking in the sort of majesty and the beauty of the, the Grand Teton Mountains and just maybe not even that much talking, just hiking and being together and just being outdoors. I think that's what I would dream.
0: Oh, that's awesome. That's really special. Going for a hike, nature, good weather.
3: Yeah, exactly. In a, in a place that was really special to us.
0: That's really awesome. Um, I really hope you uh, get that dream. Uh, we look forward to too. <laughs> hearing about it once you get it, hopefully.
3: <laughs> I'll send you a note. If I have it, I'll send you a note and a gift because maybe just asking me the question will prompt this to happen. So.
0: Excellent. Um, Lisa, this has been excellent. Really appreciate the conversation. Uh, thank you for sharing. It takes a lot of courage, um, you know, for, for you and, and for people in general to, come on and talk about their innermost feelings and uh the journey they've gone they've been through uh you had some really interesting dreams and uh it was really cool to hear about those as well could you share with everybody where people can find you and the work that you're doing
3: absolutely well first thanks so much you guys for having me on the show it was such a pleasure and i'm continuing to be fans and following along and and want to learn more about Greek dreams so thanks for having me today so folks can find me visiting my website, reimagininggrief.com and find out about the work I do with companies and individuals, the work I do for my podcast and my writing. And I also do write daily invitations of, around grief on my, all your favorite social media platforms, Instagram, Facebook, etc., even LinkedIn. Uh, and I also am a contributing VIP contributing writer for Thrive Global. So I do um, publish articles through that, but come check out Reimagine Grief on social media. Hop over to my website and visit me there. And um, you'll learn about the podcast I host, which has an expletive in it. So I will not say that, but grief is a sneaky fill in the blank. You can find that on all your favorite podcast platforms. Um, And it's an interview style podcast much like this, where I talk with people um, about their grief. And my particular angle question that I always ask each guest is, What was your earliest memory of grief in your growing up life? And what did you what do you think that taught you about what it means to grieve?
0: So yeah. Excellent. Yeah. And that's uh that's really cool. And and people can check out your podcast and also um yeah, it's a great question to have for sure. Um, so thank you and everybody you can check out our platform at GriefDreams.ca for more information on the topic. We added a donation button and there are perks to those who donate and thank you to all those people who have been donating. Really appreciate that. If you have Facebook, you can join the grief dreams group and share your dreams or hear more dreams of others. And uh, we are also on Twitter and Instagram at grief dreams. And as always, we love the and We'd love to end the show uh, with love and gratitude from us to you.